Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's Severe Mercy in Jacob's Family. God's Severe Mercy in Jacob's Family. You know, as we've been looking through the life of Joseph, you know, really, which starts from 37 all the way to the end of this wonderful book of Genesis, there's a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty and his providential working. And we've seen that already in different ways. And we're beginning to see how sovereign God is and how he providentially works through all things. But this morning especially, we're going to see how God providentially can bring also dark providences, or if you want to call it severe mercies, that he brings into the lives of his people But for us to understand, it is still a mercy nonetheless. Because he's doing this for the good of his people. As we've looked into the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 through to 41, we've seen how God has sovereignly brought Joseph to Egypt and has raised him up. Now in chapters 42 to 47, we're going to see how God is going to bring his entire family, including his father Jacob, how God's going to orchestrate things and providentially bring things about whereby they will all come to dwell in Egypt. So considering this is a focus on Jacob's family, I I want to remind you of Jacob's family as we begin our time in God's Word this morning. Of how a a dysfunctional family Jacob's family has been. When you just think of the sons of Jacob, you think of Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, he's one who tried to assert his dominance and his authority over his father by sleeping with one of his father's wives. And then we saw the next two, Simeon and Levi, who, who massacred all the men in the area of Shechem. Why? Because one man from that region defiled their sister. And we saw of how all the sons then went to that same region and even looted that entire region as well. Then you have Joseph, the, the beloved son of Jacob. And because of that favoritism that Jacob shows to Joseph, he's hated by his brothers and they sell him off as a slave and the brothers come back and lie to their father about what happened to him. And then you have someone like Judah 
who separated from the family after Joseph goes uh, away. And he himself separates from the family. And we saw that over a period of time, how he came to sleep with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. But we saw at the end of that, that God was beginning to do a work, at least in Judah's life. Because if you remember, at the end of it, he would look at Tamar and say, she is more righteous than I. And at some point now, even Judah has come back to Jacob and the rest of his brothers. But I want you to have this picture of the sons of Jacob at this point. It's a very dysfunctional family and a divided family. These sons are men who just simply want to live according to their fleshly passions without any control whatsoever. Men who are callous and violent and perverse and self-centered men having no regard for the Lord. And instead of being, mind you, this is Jacob's family, right? And the Abrahamic promise is now being passed on to these men. Or they are supposed to be the great patriarchs. But at this point, instead of being shining representatives of the Lord in the land of Canaan, Jacob's family was in danger of being fractured even more. Jacob's family, as they remained in Canaan, they were in Serious danger of going their own way and being even assimilated into the Canaanite culture. But in God's kindness and in his sovereign plan, it is to bring this family together. And bring this family together into Egypt as a unified family under God. So that once they are then in Egypt, they don't assimilate into the Egyptian culture. And eventually God's plan is to make then this bunch of no good guys, eventually where they would become the nation of God, the nation of Israel. A nation that is meant to represent God and be a blessing then to other nations around and pro- pro- proclaim his name. So really what we're going to see in chapters 42 to 47 is how God then is going to providentially work out this plan to save Jacob's family in more ways than one. Not just physically from the famine, but even spiritually too, to bring them back to the Lord, and to even reconcile this divided family, to bring them together. And part of the way God's going to do that is by bringing difficulties into this family's life. And that's what we're going to see this morning. God's severe mercy in Jacob's family. And I trust that as we look at what God is doing, we will once again recognize our need for him and how wondrous God is and understand his ways and it will cause us to just continue to trust him and walk according to his ways. So first, 
as we look at God's severe mercy in Jacob's family, we look at how the brothers end up in Egypt and, and they go to meet Joseph in verses 1 through 24. Let me begin in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among, um, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the seven years of plenty have passed, and now the seven years of famine have started. And the famine is not just in Egypt, but it's all over the earth. And the only place at this time where there is grain is in Egypt. Why? Because of Joseph's strategy to store up grain during the first seven years of plenty. But despite the severe famine, you know, crops failing at home in the land of Canaan, perhaps a severe, you know, there's... There's a short supply of food happening in Canaan. I'm sure to some extent, as far as this family is concerned, even their family was, even their livestock was being affected, possibly. But this family is so dysfunctional, i.e. Jacob's sons, that they're not really thinking, okay, what can we do that is good for our entire family? No, they're just comfortably sitting around doing nothing. And mind you, these are not teenage boys. They're grown men. You know, having their own children and some possibly even having their grandchildren. I mean, if you think of the story of Judah, if he had to sleep with his uh, daughter-in-law who finally gets pregnant and has child, that means there's at least Judah there who's a grandfather already. So they're all grown men, older men in fact. And they're just sitting around. That's how dysfunctional this family is. And so Jacob essentially comes and says, don't just sit around. Go down to Egypt, do something. You know, get grain from there. This is a life or death situation for us. You know, I wonder if the thought of going down to Egypt for the brothers brought back any memories of Joseph, the brother that they sold to the Ishmaelite caravan who was going down to Egypt. So they knew whatever happened to Joseph, I don't know if he's alive. Maybe he's alive, maybe he's dead. Oh, Egypt, 
I wonder if, if it brought any memories to them about what they did to Egypt, to Joseph. So jo- Joseph now sends his sons to Egypt, but he keeps behind one son, Benjamin, the youngest son. And in verse 4, it says he holds back Benjamin because he feared that some harm would fall on Benjamin. Again, I want to remind you, Benjamin is not a little child. He's probably in his 30s at least by now. So Benjamin can fully take care of himself, and especially if he's going with brothers as well. But what's so special about Benjamin? It's this. See, aside from Joseph, Benjamin is also the other son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Joseph is dead as far as Jacob can tell. But Jacob still continues to show favoritism to the one son that he had with his beloved wife. That old sin of Jacob continues on. He's only concerned about Benjamin that something may happen to him, even though he's not a little child. As far as all the other sons, oh, well, I guess, whatever. In fact, if you look down to verse 38, when the brothers return to Egypt, to take Benjamin back with them. Listen to Jacob's response. But he said, My son, singular, shall not go down with you, for his brother is died, and he is the only one left. See what he's doing there? In Jacob's eyes, Benjamin is my only son, my only beloved son now. All other sons are secondary to him. So Jacob is continuing to sinfully show favoritism to the one son. A dysfunctional family. And yet the wonderful thing is, God is now going to bring more difficulties into this family. Why? Because he wants to bring this family together and ultimately save this family and use this family for his glory. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Let's just stop there. So if you think of how old Joseph is at this point, we learn that Joseph was 30 years old when he became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Another seven years of plenty have passed. So Joseph is at least 37 at this point. 
A minimum of 20 years have passed from when he was sold as a slave, when he was 17 years old, by his brothers, to now, 17 to 37. So he's no more a teenage boy. He's a 37-year-old man at least. And he has a new name. Zaphenath Pania, that's the name Pharaoh gave him. He's got an Egyptian name. He looks like an Egyptian where he's clean-shaven, no beard, and uh, nothing on the head either. He's wearing Egyptian garb and almost looks like royalty, wearing the very ring of Pharaoh himself. And he speaks even the Egyptian language, which is what we'll see later as to why he uses an interpreter. So much has changed with Joseph, at least externally. And the brothers don't recognize him, but he recognizes his brother as well. And the text says here that Joseph treated his brothers like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now we might be tempted to think, oh, okay, Joseph is being spiteful here toward his brothers for all the wrong that has been done to him. But I want you to think of the life of Joseph and how God has matured him. And we've seen that over the past few chapters. And as God has matured him and grown him, we know him to be a man who seeks only to honor the Lord. And he's always, even in the worst situations, seeking to be a blessing to others. And remember, you know, last week we saw as he had two sons, one of the names of his sons was Manasseh, which, where he's praising God and saying, God has made me forget my household. Or in other words, forgive my household. That he's not holding any bitterness toward his brothers. And the text also tells us that when his brothers come and bow down to him, He's reminded of his dreams that he had. What dreams? The dreams from when he was back in Canaan. When he was with his family that his entire household would one day bow down to him. I mean, this, this was God's revelation to him, that dream that he had at a time when the written word of God was not present. That's one of the ways in which God communicated with his people. And so Joseph believed in God's revelation. But remember his brother's response at the time? What did they do? Did they accept that dream? No, they laughed at him and mocked him. They outright rejected God's word of revelation. But what's happening here now? The brothers unknowingly are fulfilling what God said would happen to Joseph. And they're coming down and buying down to him. The very same people who totally mocked at God and his word. And the same thing is being fulfilled through them. I love that about God. That whatever he has declared will come to pass, even through people who reject his word, where he will use those very same people 
to bring about what he has purposed. No one can thwart what he has planned. So Joseph, he's reminded of the dreams when his brothers bow down to him and, and he's recognizing God is at work here. He's bringing to pass what he had told me. God's hand is there in this. His brothers are coming to him. So now, Joseph, recognizing God's hand here, is now going to deal with his brothers in a shrewd way to try and figure out where they're at. To essentially show them some tough love. To try and help them. Back to verse 9. So they say they're from Canaan. And what does Joseph say to them? You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And essentially saying, well, I, I can see 10 men here. You guys might be a group of spies. Come to see the vulnerable and the weak spots of the land. To try and come and attack us at some point. Verse 10, but they say to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. The irony of that. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. See, Joseph is putting pressure on them, accusing them of being spies. I mean, this would have brought a lot of fear to them. Because here's the, the second most powerful man in Egypt saying, you guys are spies, because if they genuinely are spies, they can be put to death. So then, now they have to explain themselves as to who they are. See how shrewd Joseph is? So with their explanation, Joseph now understands his father is still alive. That his younger brother, who is not there with them, is back with their father. And as far as what they think of Joseph, well, they're a bit vague about it. They say, one is no more. What does that mean? Oh, he died. He got killed. How? They, you know, they don't say anything about that. So Joseph wants to test them to see if they have changed in these 20 years. I, I mean, th think about you know, possible things that Joseph would be thinking about as to why he's testing them. You know, are they going to plot against Benjamin as well? And try and get rid of him because he's now father's favorite considering he's back with father? I mean, are my brothers, can, can, can they be men who can be actually trusted now? Are they truly honest men like they say they are now? Or are they going to continue with lies? And even lies about what they did to me? Uh, just think about this, even from a practical sense, right? If his 
brothers now come to settle in Egypt. A divided family. No regard for God. They're perverse and dishonest, murderous, violent men just seeking to fulfill their own interests. If they come into Egypt and they create havoc, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be executed, right? It's not going to be good for them if they come into Egypt like this, if there's no change with them. And besides, I'm sure Jacob would... Pardon me, I'm sure Joseph was also concerned about their spiritual well-being. I mean, these have been hard-hearted men. Do they have any concern for honoring the Lord? Do they have a soft, repentant heart? Do they still hate me? You know, how can we come together as a family so I can bring them back here in Egypt? Under my leadership. So that's why Joseph wants to test them and figure out their character. So verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph tells them, pick one from among you to to go and get your younger brother. As for the rest of you, remain in prison. Remain in the pit. Remember the pit that uh, Joseph was in for so many years? And so he puts them all in that pit or in the prison. And Jacob then comes to them after three days. And then now he tells them something different. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. I mean, this would have seemed so out of place for an Egyptian to say, I fear God. I mean, Joseph is essentially saying, I fear God, so I will do what is just and fair in my dealings with you. And there's a sense in which he's even you know, asking them, implying to them, what about you men? Do you fear God? Are you going to be just and fair in your dealings and how you live your life? So you're sort of putting that thought in their mind as well, bringing God into the picture. And so he says in verse 19, If you are honest men, let one of the brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
See, all the anguish, all the distress that they felt when this prominent Egyptian person is not listening to them. We're not spies. We're not, li- we're not spies. Believe us. No, they're not being heard. They're being treated unjustly. And then they're thrown in the pit. It suddenly brought to mind the distress that their brother Joseph went through when they treated him harshly and put him in the pit as he was begging for his life. And what's interesting is after the three days, Joseph comes and shows mercy to them. He changes things around and he says, actually, nine of you go now. And only one needs to remain. It would have made them think even more harder of how harshly they treated their brother with no mercy many years ago. Because they ultimately just sold him as a slave while he was begging. And notice, as, as they're beginning to realize this, they talk to each other and they're awakened to their guilt. And notice even the terminology that they use. Our brother. They hated him. Mocked him and did all kinds of things to this brother of theirs many years ago. And as they're convicted of their sin, they're using tender words to describe him. Our brother, this is what we did to him. And then, and this is them just talking amongst each other as this so-called Egyptian is standing there. But they're not understanding this Egyptian can actually understand them. Verse 22, And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. I mean, there's a sense in which I mean, Reuben is the oldest and he's trying to, you know, be all self-righteous here. Yes, he wasn't directly involved, but he was certainly just as guilty in living with the lie and lying to their father about what happened to Joseph. But Joseph understands for the first time at least, there was one brother at least that tried to help him. Verse 23 and 24, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. You know, there there was always an interpreter and Joseph spoke in Egyptian. So they didn't think that Joseph was understanding all this as they spoke to one another. And then he turned away from them and wept. And then he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. See, seeing the, some kind of softness happening in, his, in the lives of his brothers, and as they're talking about, what, you know, what did we do to our brother so many years ago, brings him to tears and he can't hold himself back. 
But he doesn't want to show that. He doesn't want to reveal himself as yet to them. So he goes away from there and he comes back. And he takes Simeon. Who's Simeon? The second oldest person. So by birth order, he realizes, okay, Reuben, he didn't lead this whole thing. Simeon is the second one. So, you know, by default in those days, it's the oldest that would take charge and do things. And so he binds Simeon in front of their eyes. I'm sure even that would have reminded them of how Joseph was bound in chains in front of them and taken away from them. See, what's happening in this scene is God has brought about difficulties And brought about the circumstances in such a way as to soften the hearts of Joseph's brothers. For the first time, they recognize that they are guilty and they deserve to be punished. I mean, this is the beginning of the process of repentance for them and for them being reconciled to God and with one another. I mean, think of these men, as I've told you before. They were sensual men, violent, murderous, hard-hearted men who had no regard for any other person and certainly no regard for God. But God in His mercy has brought about circumstances whereby their hearts are now being softened and they're becoming aware of their guilt. What a grace from God. You know, I love the fact that God uses His Word and people and circumstances to convict His people of their sin, even when they try to hide their sin. I love that about God. It's not pleasant. certainly isn't pleasant, and which is why it's a severe mercy in some sense. Because when we know, when we are exposed to our sin and its wickedness, it's a horrible thing. But it is really God's severe mercy. Because he does that to his children so that we would repent and run to Jesus to find mercy. See, Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's not what the world will tell you. You know that? In fact, if you go into the world and you tell them, you know, I've done this wrong thing or done that wrong thing and this is what... And you say, oh, this is sinful... You know, and I recognize the guilt of it. You know what the world will tell you? Oh, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You're a good person. Because they don't have any category of the sinfulness of man. What you need to really do is show some compassion to yourself. 
What you really need to do is forgive yourself. What you really need to do then is to do something to, to numb these uh, guilt feelings or drown it out in some way so that you can just get over this. And then replace all this negative thinking with just positive thinking. Maybe even use some distractions. And then do this and do that and keep working at it and then finally you'll become a better person. That's what the world will tell you. What the world will tell you is deny the reality of sin in your life and then just try and be a better person by doing this and that. You know what will happen if we take the world's advice that way? We're only going to sear our conscience. Make our heart hardened more so towards sin. Or there's guilt, shut it down. Just love yourself more. The Bible says, if you've sinned, you are guilty. And you cannot change that. You can't somehow love yourself and change that. You certainly can't forgive yourself. I mean, who are you to forgive yourself? I can't forgive myself. No one can in their sin. The Bible says there must be punishment for the crime. But the gospel is the good news that Christ paid that punishment in my place and your place and in the place of every believer. That's what the gospel is. And if you recognize your guilt because you have actually sinned, then it is God's kindness to you. It is a severe mercy. It is still his mercy toward you to turn to him. That mercy and forgiveness and grace that is found only in Jesus Christ. And even the ability to then change from the inside out. But if we deny our guilt that results from our sin, it's not only going to sear our conscience and harden our heart even more, it'll start making us more and more indifferent to the grace and the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus Christ and our need for him. Listen to the words of 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So John is saying, if we are Christians, we are people who are characterized by walking in the light of God, in the truth of who God is, not hiding behind any sin. And the reality is that we, everyone who lives this way can be assured that they are cleansed from all their sin by the blood of Jesus. So truth number one, 
A Christian, a believer, is someone who walks in the light and is a forgiven person by the blood of Jesus. But then he says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Second reality of a Christian, we still do sin. They're both true of a Christian. Somebody who characteristically walks in the light is forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but someone who still sins. So what do we do about that? What do we do about when we sin and when we are convicted of our sin? Verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when God brings about, shows us, exposes the sin in our hearts and we confess that and we turn to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. And for us to experience that afresh of how faithful God is, of how forgiving He is. To renew our joy so that then we can live in obedience to Him. That's the severe grace of God. And that's the wonder of the gospel. That as a believer, when God convicts you of your sin, that you don't run away from Him, but you run back to Him and seek His grace. And you cling on to the Lord Jesus, and as you marvel at what He has done, He will give you even more grace to live for Him. So the beginning of repentance is beginning to take place in the life of Joseph's sons. A softening of the heart. Now the brothers return to Jacob and we see that in verses 25 through to 38. So as we get into this, just I want to remind you, so Joseph has been very merciful to release nine of the brothers. I mean, they're absolute scoundrels. They should have been in prison for much longer. But he says, no, no, I'm going to release nine of you. I'm not going to let you suffer for too long in prison. And now look at what else he does. Verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and this was done for them. So Joseph orders his servants, fill up these men's bags with grain up to the brim. Oh, and on the quiet he says, and you know all that money they paid for the grain, just put it back in the sacks as well. And also give them extra provision for their long journey back to Canaan. I mean, Joseph is being extremely kind and generous to these brothers that have treated him so poorly. In fact, even the money that he puts back in their bags, he's not trying to trick them in any way. You know, based on what we'll see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 43, he's simply being super generous 
And he's simply wanting to bless them. He's not trying to trick them in any way. That's why he's returned the money. He just, it's like, no, just give them back the money and just let them be blessed. That's all he's doing here. But the test now for these brothers, that's before these brothers, is whether or not they will come back with Benjamin to save this one brother in prison. Will they take the grain and the money and abandon their brother like they did many years ago with Joseph? Or are their hearts truly softened and changed? That's the big test here. Verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in, my, in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed him. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this? that God has done to us. Finding money in one of the sacks that was opened caused all of their hearts to essentially just sink. They trembled with fear saying, what has God done to us? Why, why, why are they trembling so much? Because the problem is, now they could be even considered as thieves who stole grain from Egypt without any payment. But notice also, they're also becoming more and more conscious of God in their lives. In fact, this is the first time they acknowledge God's working in their lives. But here's the irony though. God is truly showing his kindness and his grace to them through Joseph. You know, providing them food and plenty. But at this point, they don't understand it. And what they think is, oh, God is trying to get me. See that irony there? Verse 29. When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, and they told all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. I mean, did you notice in their explanation to their father Jacob, they don't mention any of the bad parts. They don't say, Oh, you know, actually we were put in prison for three days. And actually, Simeon is now tied up and in prison. And if we don't go back, we're all dead. 
you know, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it more palatable for Jacob so that they can actually take Benjamin with them to go back to Egypt. Jacob at this point doesn't say anything. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. So now it's not just in one sack. Everyone's opening up their bags. It's like all our monies are there. See, the last time they gave, these brothers came and gave news about Joseph, they returned with a bag of silver. Now they've returned with grain. They've got a lot of money, or at least the money they'd taken, they've brought it back. Simeon's missing, and they all have this guilty, fearful look. Jacob understands there's something wrong here. And he certainly knows the character of his sons. So verse 36, now Jacob speaks. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And then in verse 37, Reuben is, you know, trying to be the leader again, although, you know, he's disqualified and never meant to be a leader. But then he puts, puts his hand up and says in verse 37, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. What's Reuben's response? Or oh, I'll sacrifice others just in case things go bad. That's not a good leader. That's not a person you want to trust and trust anybody with. So then Jacob responds, verse 38. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left, speaking of Benjamin. If harm would happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And the chapter ends. I mean, there's no resolution here at this point. As we come to the end of this chapter, we find Jacob is despondent and downcast and grieved. In fact, he's still grieving over the loss of his Joseph after all these years. And then he's saying, Simeon is gone. Now he's clinging on to his one and only favorite son, Benjamin, not wanting any harm to come to him. And so in the providence of God, as Jacob sees all the difficulties come into his life, all he can say at this point is, everything is 
against me. You know, it's hard to see Jacob this way. And, I mean, I, I love the fact we have God's Word. I, 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 I really do. Because we don't just get to see how God's people wrestle with Him. We also get to see what God is doing in the lives of His people. We get to see God's vantage point. So we don't have to guess God's character and His ways. Because who He is and how He works, it's always consistent. He never changes. And even though we don't always know what God is doing with some specific issue in our world, God is nonetheless working in and through that, ultimately for His glory and the good of His people. But at this point, Jacob is thinking, God is, or everything is against me. But can I tell you, brothers and sisters, of how mistaken Jacob is. Jacob thinks his beloved son Joseph is dead, but his son Joseph is the second in command in the most powerful nation at the time and is saving the world. He thinks his son Simeon is dead. His son Simeon is not dead, but is in prison under the care of Joseph. He thinks if he leaves Benjamin to go to Egypt, some harm will come to him. But in reality, Benjamin going to Egypt will only bless him. Why? Because God has prepared Joseph there and ultimately to bless Jacob and his entire family. Is Jacob mistaken? Everything is against me? Absolutely. He just doesn't know it. It's just the way he's perceiving things. Brothers and sisters, I... I want to take you just to two very familiar verses in the New Testament as I come to a close. Romans 8.28, and we all know this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then Romans 8. 31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to think of the logic of those two verses. God works all things for the good of his people. So God is sovereign. We've been seeing that already in the life of Joseph and in other parts as well. And he's sovereignly orchestrating all things for the good of his people. He's in control of all things. 
And then verse 31 in Romans 8, 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer? No one. And nothing. Why? Because God is sovereignly controlling all things for our good. That means even the worst things that are happening, we can never, as believers say, this is against me. You see the logic of that? We can never say that. Ever. Because it is not true. God is for you, and even through all the difficulties, as as from our vantage point, it might seem like everything is against us. No, God is for you and he's working all things. Nothing is coming against you. He's actually working it for your good and ultimately for his glory. Oh, this is an important lesson that we need to learn and remind ourselves and remind each other. What is the greatest proof of the fact that God is for us? And that's verse in Romans 8 that he did not even spare his own son that's the greatest proof that God is for you if you are a believer friend if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian I do want to tell you this that God is not for you. God is against you. See, because God is a holy God and a righteous God and he cannot tolerate any kind of sin in his presence. So that means as you are against him in your sin, you, you stand guilty before him and God is against you. But I also want to tell you this, friend. This God is also gracious and merciful. Where he sent his son into this world. And he was treated as though he was the cursed one on that cross. And... God's judgment was poured out on his son, the Lord Jesus. Not for his sin, but for the sin of sinners like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day to to declare to the world of who Jesus is, that he is indeed the son of God, so that then he would be raised up to the right hand of power and given a name that is above every name. Friend, you cannot forgive yourself. You cannot love yourself more if God has so graciously shown your guilt this morning before him. Then I would plead to you to run to him and run to Jesus Christ and see what he has done. And if you really do, then turn away from your sin and trust in him and rely on him and follow him. For those of us who are believers, 
want to say this. As we understand God's sovereignty and his workings and the fact that he does only good for his people and that he is for his people, that when we go through dark providences in our life, maybe you're going through one right now, you know, in your family, in your workplace, some other situation. Yes, it is hard. But this is not God coming after you. But God is truly doing this for your good and his glory. And in that you can rest. And God will get the glory for that. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing that we, we don't understand you as we should, even based on how you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture. Lord, forgive our unbelief when we go through difficult seasons of life. And yet we thank you that even even those difficult circumstances are a severe mercy from your hand because you are ultimately sovereignly ordaining all things. And it is not coming against us, but it is drawing us to you. And for this we are thankful. Help us to understand you this way and more so as we look at Christ and what he has done and the hope that we have in him. We pray that you would Keep us under your sovereign care, trusting you and loving you and making much of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.